Amen. Thank you for that. Some of my favorite songs this morning. We want to turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. The 31st of October in America is Halloween, and we all know what that's about, and candy and trick-or-treating and all that stuff, and uh, fall festival every year on Sunday. Uh, But the 31st of October is also Reformation Day, and it's that day we look back to when Martin Luther did what Martin Luther did uh, best, which is confronting his own generation and the church of his day. And on that day, 500 years ago in 1517, 500 years ago Tuesday, uh, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses in Latin uh, to the door in Wittenberg. They were not nailed up there to create a, a huge stir, but to create debate. They were not in the street language of the Germans. It was in the academic language of Latin. And he nailed them up there, as you saw in uh, the video, uh, to generate among those who were interested in the subject uh, a direction for the future of where the church needed to go and how the church could begin the process of purging out the elements of church life that were not what they needed to be. So we look back on that, and this morning I want us to look at Romans chapter 1, which is, if any passage of Scripture describes the Protestant Reformation or the heart of it or the heart of Martin Luther, this one would. If you could talk to Martin today and ask him, what's your favorite passage, I think he would say the one we're going to look at for the next few minutes. So you may want to grab a pew Bible or just follow on the screen. Uh, I titled this, we looked at Romans a long time ago in here, uh, but I title it for this morning, Here I Stand, the Gospel of Paul and of Luther. The early verses of Romans 1 show the call of the Apostle Paul, and he describes about himself being called into Christian service and ministry. But these verses show the heart of the Apostle Paul and what he was all about in the reaching of people. Now, you've all probably been to church and heard preachers or Sunday school and heard Sunday school teachers or you've turned on Christian radio and you've heard someone exhorting you saying you need to be more serious about reaching others with the gospel and sharing your faith. How do you respond when you hear that? Maybe uh, defensively, like I, I do that or I do that enough or maybe fearfully, like I could never do that. Or uh, Paul shows his heart for people and where that heart comes from. Romans 1, 13 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you. That's to Rome, to the Roman Christians. Uh, he hasn't been there yet, but there is already a group of believers there. I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, or you could say the rest of the nations, as the rest of the, of the ethnic groups says, that's my plan. Isn't it kind of encouraging that Paul's plans got changed uh, and he couldn't stay on schedule just like we can't? Uh, Things come along and you get rerouted. And and Paul says, but that's always been one of my goals. I desire my heart to come to Rome, the center of the empire, and to do ministry there and have some spiritual fruit among you folks and help you in your church there. And see what God would do. That's my heart. That's what I want. But uh, so far, I've been sidetracked. But I want to do that there just like 
among the rest of the nations, literally the remaining nations, which means uh, he's referring to the nations he's already been to, and he's, he's gone from uh, place to place across the map uh, to the other nations to do that. It may be that he's looking into the future and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I want to do in Rome what I want to do in the rest of the nations, among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, that's my heart. Now, you'll probably never uh, do what Martin Luther did or probably anything close to that. Uh, you may never be a missionary, but you're a Christian. And so something in your heart, if you're committed to Christ, uh, needs to be, we must see that this goes to the people, that they get God's word and the language of the people so that they can understand it, so they can respond to it in faith, so they can apply it to their lives so that they too can become world changers. Something in our hearts need to stir with the spirit of the Apostle Paul as he writes these words. He says, I am under obligation. Or the old King James says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. I'm indebted. When you come to Christ, when you come to salvation in the gospel, you're indebted to the God who made that possible. Everything about you is now under the, the rule of Christ in your life. That's the good design of God, that, that you would be uh, not only an intellectual believer, but that you'd be a heart responder to this amazing gospel. You owe God every breath you breathe, every day you live, every good thing in your life. For all of those, you're indebted to God. But when you become, through Christ, indebted to God, you also become indebted to the people for whom Christ died. You're committed to, to the Savior, but for those that the Savior is reaching, it's a part of normal Christianity. And Paul says, I'm burdened with a sense of duty and obligation to the nations, here rendered as Greeks and barbarians. What's the difference between the two? The Greeks are uh, the more sophisticated. The, the Greek language is the language of the world in this time. It's the, the advanced international language like English today. The barbarians, the barbaros, uh, that term, the, the roots of it are a little foggy, but it, Barbar is kind of like blah, blah, blah in English. It's sort of mocking a communication that doesn't make sense. So the barbarians are those who speak in unintelligible language. They're the people that are not respected by the world. They're, just, they're, they're the people on the lower shelves of culture. And he says, I'm indebted to the Greeks on the top shelf and to the barbarians on the bottom shelf. I owe them because they owe Christ my life and my eternal life and my sense of purpose in life. I am under obligation. I'm duty-bound. He said to the Corinthians, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't fulfill my sense of purpose and mission. It's the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's what I live for, Paul is saying in verse 15. <clears throat> so for my part, I am eager the King James said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What does it mean to be ready to preach the gospel? It means, well, that you've got your bags packed and you're going to go wherever you need to go, but it means that your, your head is filled with the knowledge of the Word of God. You've learned the gospel. You've learned the Bible, the content of the message that's to be taken. But being ready means also 
Being eager means that your attitude about God is right. You think rightly about God. Yes, uh, God, I, I not only know that you're there and I know your attributes. I've studied theology. I, I know your attributes, but, but I have the right attitude. I love you, God, and I want to please you. I want to live a life that serves you and your attitude is right. Being ready to preach the gospel means having a right attitude about lost people, about really caring. And isn't it easy? I mean, if we're really honest, and we don't have to give any public confessions this morning, but isn't it easy to get comfortable in our American Christianity where we're kind of consumed with what God has to offer us and the comfort zone that can generate around us and lose uh, a handle on the fact that there are billions of people out there who need to be impacted by the same gospel that you say has changed your life? Paul says, that's never good enough. I am driven, I am ready, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome, just like everywhere else I want to go. Uh, his ultimate destination, dream destination, was Spain, which was as far as you could go. And the, the ships of that day couldn't go any further than Spain. So that's the edge of the map. For all anybody knew, you, you might fall off the map if you went any further beyond that. But he says, I want to push it to the limit as far as we can go with this and I am eager to do this because I love God and I love those whom God loves I serve Christ and I'm reaching to those for whom Christ died that's my life purpose that's my mission in verse 16 he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel and we've all probably been there somehow ashamed of the gospel you can be ashamed of the gospel in a number of ways, but uh, when are you most prone to be ashamed of the gospel? When you're around friends or old friends, former friends, uh, family members, uh, people at work that might mock your faith, people at school that think it's crazy to be committed to the Christian faith. Uh, when are you most inclined to be ashamed of the gospel? Paul says, I'm, I'm past that. I've grown past that. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who responds in faith. Uh, to believe there, the word belief is the exercising of faith or trust, uh, putting your trust in Christ is the answer. That, he says, is the power of God for salvation. To Jews, you know, the Old Testament story goes on for hundreds, thousands of years of God working through a particular group of people. And he says, I'm committed to, <clears throat> to the Jews and making sure that it goes to them, this, this New Testament, New Covenant message, but also to the Greek. And the Greek word there is not just the people that live around Athens and Corinth but, uh, or speak the Greek language, but uh, the non-Jewish world is sort of a, a title for the unreached world, the Gentile world. In Mark, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. Paul would write later to Timothy, probably about 10 years after he wrote this Roman letter. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. 
For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. How can you have an awareness of who Christ is and experience what Christ offers in the gospel and go through all of that in your life and then be ashamed of that? Paul says, no, no, no. I'm excited about that and I'm driven to take that to the nations because I want everybody else to experience what I've experienced. And all this is this building argument for Christian involvement. Now, when he finishes this paragraph, he's going to go into this amazing, long, multi-chapter discourse on the very nature of the gospel itself and what the gospel is. And remind us that the gospel is about Christ doing for us what we can't do for ourselves and Christ dying in our place and becoming an atoning sacrifice for us. But that's coming, but he says... I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm, I'm most excited about that. In fact, I've chosen to build my whole life around that reality and taking that to the nations. Oh, just a little bit of that could rub off on us as we read through Romans and through the life experience of Paul and later Martin Luther. Some of that could just rub off on us so that we get up in the morning excited about somebody else coming to Christ because we share our faith unashamedly and that the gospel is the most important thing in our lives. Now, there's one more verse to this little paragraph, and this is the central one. This is Martin Luther's verse. He had many verses. He's a Bible translator and a theology teacher and a Bible expositor and uh, many verses. But if you had one verse that you, uh, you could build the story of Martin Luther around, it would be Romans 1.17, a large part of which is a quotation from the Old Testament. He says there, for in it, in the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Through this, what, how God describes righteousness is described for us. And then Paul says, and you see the scripture on the screen, it's in all capital letters in quotes, which means he's quoting from the Old Testament. And what he's quoting from in the Old Testament is the book of Habakkuk. And that may not be your favorite book of the Old Testament. You may not remember anything about Habakkuk. It starts out with a bit of bewilderment on Habakkuk's part. A lot of the prophets are hammering away at what God is doing in judgment upon the nations. Habakkuk writes his letter with astonishment that God's not being more severe with the nations. God, when are you going to intervene? When are you going to do something about this? I look around me at what's going on in my time. And, and in chapter 1, God says to the prophet, no, I'm at work in your time, and if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't be able to understand it. And that's Habakkuk. And then you come on into the next chapter, and Habakkuk is talking about the consequences of pride and the prideful attitude that lives without God. And it's in that context uh, that Habakkuk says, but the righteous, or the just, in the old language, the just shall live by faith. It's by faith they shall live. We have this abbreviated version of Playmobil of the life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was uh, on track, as you saw, uh, to be a lawyer. That's what his dad, who ran mines, uh, wanted him to study so that he could sort of be the, the brains for the business and, and uh, be smart, make a lot of money in the business world. And he gave up law for theology. He was sent by his mentor off to 
Wittenberg to become a student, scholar, and theology professor. And out of that, he begins to study the, the books of the Bible and teach them. And he, he goes through this couple of years long study of the book of Psalms, expounding Psalms over and over and over again. And, and then he comes into a teaching of the book of Romans. He's already made this tremendous transformation in his life and reordering of his, his priorities, but he's still searching in his soul. How in the world with a God so great and a God so holy do you ever find personal peace? And teaching through the book of Romans, he comes to Romans 1.17, and the verse comes to him over and over and over again. Those magical words Paul quotes from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, and the lights come on. You call it in theology illumination. It's like turning on the light switch in here in the middle of the night. Uh, the lights come on for Martin Luther. That's what it's all about. That's the gospel. That we survive not by giving enough to the church or to Rome or to anybody else, not by attending enough, not by polishing up our own act. The just or the righteous live by faith, by trust in Christ, in Christ alone. And Luther came to understand that it was not just that if you trust Christ, you go to heaven someday. He says, today, this day, in this life, we live by faith. That's what changes us from a life of fear to a life of joy. That's what brings the Christian life experience into what Jesus would call the abundant life. It's exciting because Christ is there and we're trusting him and we're living by faith. It's not that we, we got a ticket by faith to heaven. We live by faith. And it shapes our language and our attitudes and our actions. Everything about us is modified by our faith. We live by faith. That became the driving force, the motivation for this remarkable man, Martin Luther. I've got all my collection of stuff, and I bring things in every now and then. A couple of these things are from This is in Latin, and it translates into English, uh, triumphal Luther, or Luther's triumph, uh, and it shows Martin Luther. I know you can't see it from there. You're welcome to come down after church and look at this all you want. Uh, but on the left-hand side of the picture is Martin Luther, and on the right-hand side is Pope Leo. And even if you like popes, uh, he was not a good one. He would be an embarrassment to the system. He was a a loser and a, an unrighteous man who was scamming people and uh, was doing what he did for all the wrong purposes. But uh, behind Leo is the empire of the status quo and all the imagery and all the ritual. And on the other side is Martin Luther up on the hill and the Lutherans are underneath him and the distinctive of the Lutheran, their side of the picture is about half as full because their lives are simpler and they're just holding Bibles some of them are holding pens, uh, but Martin Luther is holding up the Bible. Uh, and uh, you can't read it because it's not in your language. But he's saying, this is who we are. This is what we're about, the Word of God. And all this other stuff has just brought all this confusion, and we must return to the simple truth of the Word of God. The other thing uh, from Henry I brought in here before, uh, this is an indulgence. Uh, it's a pre-printed form, and they, 500 years ago, uh, in Germany, they were printing that form just like that. It's a fill-in-the-blank, and you come in with your money. <clears throat> These are my sins. 
Uh, this is how much those sins cost. If I pay you this amount of money, you'll fill my name in there and the priest will sign off on it, maybe put a little seal on there. You can take that with you as a guarantee that you're forgiven for all of those things. If you pay enough money, you can be forgiven for everything forever. Uh, it's almost a, a license to sin. It's an outrageous abuse of the gospel. And Martin Luther, who day by day is getting deeper and deeper into the word, is saying, somebody's got to speak out about this. And the, when he nails his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg or Wittenberg, it's mostly about that. Somebody's got to tell the people, the common people, the ordinary folks, that you can't buy your salvation. It comes by amazing grace as a gift from God. And that's the only way you're going to have uh, heaven and glory. It's the only way you're going to find abundant life here, living by faith and a gospel that you can never pay for. And so the indulgence system was an absolute outrage, and it was used to finance building projects. And Martin Luther, in a very dangerous time, was courageous enough to speak out against it. The wonder of wonders as you read church history, is that he didn't die for speaking out against that. But he was put on trial. It's hard to find an equivalent for us today to the trial of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. That sounds appetizing, doesn't it? Uh, he go, he's called to the Diet of Worms to defend his writings. And they spread his, his books out on a table, uh, all lined up neatly on the table like a book display. And they said... We've got you here. Really, we just want to ask you two questions. That's all. We're not here to debate. We want to ask you two things. Did you write these books and these tracts? And obviously, his name's stamped on the, the writings, and it's obviously his work, and he knows that they know that it, it is his, his work. So the first question is, did you write this stuff? And he had to admit that he did. And the second question is, will you recant? Will you take it all back? Will you say you're sorry? And then we'll go on from here. And you will tell the people that you've influenced that you're sorry that you ever wrote what you wrote in these books. The Babylonian captivity of the church and, and these writings that were written against uh, the church of the day and all of its abuses and sinful activities. And of course, he refused to do so. After that, he was uh, backed by the the movers and shakers of Germany stood by Luther in the face of the emperor, the young emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was an astounding thing for them to do. And one of them took him into captivity. They kind of faked a kidnapping and took him, as you saw in the little video, off to the castle where he stayed. Now, what do you do when you're suddenly pushed out of what you normally do and you're kind of away where you're out of touch with the world? Over a hundred years before, John Wycliffe had had a similar experience. He didn't go to a castle or into prison, but he was exiled from Oxford University where he was the, the top professor. Uh, he was exiled off to Lutterworth in central England and said, well, what am I going to do up here in little Lutterworth? Uh, no longer with access to the libraries of Oxford, no longer able to, to preach and to teach in the big public arenas. What do I do up here? He says, I know what I'll do to redeem the time. I'll translate the Bible. I'll put the Bible in the, the language of the people. And so Wycliffe translated from an old Latin text into the early or middle English of the people of England in that day. 
he launched. He was the morning star, the preview of the coming Reformation. So you come on down into the early 1500s in the life of Martin Luther, and now he's been taken from the Diet of Worms by friends into captivity, off to the castle, and what are you going to do till the smoke clears? What are you going to do to spend your time? And maybe he's read about Wycliffe, or maybe he just has the same thought pattern. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll translate. I'll take the truth, just as I've written these books, I'll now take my time to take the Bible and put it in the language of the German people. And then the protection and the safety and security of that setting, he begins to translate into the German language. He does so at an amazing pace. In less than a year, he turns out a New Testament and then goes on into the Old Testament. Well, you know, I collect Bible stuff. This is uh, two pages of Scripture. And I know you can't, you can't read it. If you were up here two inches away from it, you couldn't read it because it's in German. Uh, but you're welcome to come up and see it later. Uh, the upper piece of paper here on the left is from the year 1523. It's really that old. Martin Luther turned out his first edition of the New Testament in 1522. That's four years before Tyndale got it into English. They probably knew each other, and Tyndale's inspired by what Luther's doing. In 1522, the very first New Testament in German comes off. It's about as big as your hand, the size of these little pieces of paper, almost like a, a little Gideon Bible. Uh, this is from 1523, and it's from the book of Exodus in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He begins to publish that. The leaf down here is a first edition New Testament page from 1529. So it's a second printing of the first edition, uh, both of these from the days of Martin Luther. There's a real good chance uh, that when these two pieces of paper were printed, Martin Luther walked through the print shop and uh, checked out the work that was being done. But that's the size those little pages are. You can take a look at that after church this morning if you like. Martin Luther came to the same conclusion all good reformers did, that the, the gospel is so dear and so central and so precious, it not, ought not to be confusing, it ought to be simple. It ought not be for the elite, it ought to be for everybody. It ought not to be in an academic language, it ought to be in the language of the people. And so he did. He put it out there for the German people, and it rocked the planet. And people like Tyndale in England found uh, inspiration from that. And tan translating and printing just down a short distance away, Tyndale does his work for the English people. But Martin Luther said, my people in Germany will have God's word in a way that they can understand it. Luther's Bible becomes the equivalent of the King James in English in terms of shaping the language for the future centuries and versions of it are still used today. Martin Luther said it's, it's all so profound and yet it's all so simple. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy the abundant life. You trust Christ with your whole being and he brings it to life for you. Jesus paid the price. You can't pay the price by buying indulgences or anything else you might want to do. Jesus paid it all. That's the finished work of the cross. By grace, through faith, you are saved. Not as a result of your works, Paul would write to the Ephesians. So there's no room for boasting. It is the amazing gift of God. And Martin Luther wanted you to know that.
The Apostle Paul wanted you to know that because the sovereign God and his reaching purposes sent Jesus into our world and the word became flesh, John would write, and dwelt among us. That you might have the truth in your language. It's no small thing. What Luther stood for and what Paul was driven by as described in Romans 1 is the most important thing that you can ever get straight in your own mind and your own heart. And something about you and me every day ought to be stirred by what these men stood for. It's not just something to acknowledge every now and then. It's something to be driven by every day. You are redeemed. If you are redeemed, you're redeemed through the gospel by grace, through your faith and trust in Christ. And you are debtor to the nations because of that. It is your calling. It is your duty. It is your responsibility. It is your privilege to take that same message to the nations. Luther got it because Paul got it. Because Jesus got it, or Jesus gave it to us today. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for your reaching love. On Reformation Day, we look back with gratitude to those who hundreds of years ago recommitted our culture to the things of you. But we're grateful to those who thousands of years ago in biblical times committed their whole lives to you and you worked through their circumstances to bring us the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to ask you to build into us an attitude of appreciation for that today. But Lord, also motivate us uh, to be a people on fire for the gospel, excited about the spread of your word. Uh, we may not need to translate the Bible, but we need to be involved in the process of seeing that the, the thousands of cultures that are out there around the globe today uh, get the word in their own time, in their own language, in a way that they can comprehend. Lord, we are uh, excited about so many things, and some of them are pretty foolish. Lord, help us to prioritize in our lives as Luther did 500 years ago, help us to prioritize things uh, so that Christ is exalted through our choices and through our speech and through our attitudes. We come asking all these things in his name. Amen.